Thank you so much, House of Praise. There probably couldn't be a better song for this series than that one right there. Jonah, no doubt, was crying from the inside out, not just from his own heart, asking God to change his heart, but he was crying from the inside of a little fish, wasn't he? It's a good place to begin. It's a good place to start at the end. Remember last week? And Jonah found himself right there at the end, which is the best place to begin. I hope you've had a good week starting at the end. Now, if you're not sure what I mean, you need to go back and hear last week's message. It's online or you can ask for a CD. But all week long, we've been agreeing together. We would start at the end as our beginning. And it's been neat to watch God do so many neat things in the lives of people as they have found the end quicker. Jonah found his end, didn't he? And it was described for us in the beginning part of Jonah chapter 2. Take your Bibles and find that, would you? His end was put very simply in these first two verses. He just said, I called to the Lord. I made a last minute plea. It reminds me of the story of three pastors who were discussing prayer and the different and best postures for praying and how to best go about positioning yourself when you're praying to the Lord. And these three pastors were discussing this. And while they were talking, there was a telephone repairman who was in the background working on some things in the office. And he was listening to these three theologians, these three seminary professor type people. They were saying, one was saying, you know, it's the best posture is with your hands and you've got to lift your hands up and you've got to fold them. That's the best way to pray. Another would say, no, it's in the knees. God wants you to bow. And the third would say, no, it's, it's just in laying straight across the floor face down. And they began to argue and kind of debate their theological preferences about prayer. And the telephone repairman couldn't stand any longer. He spoke up. He said, guys, he said, you know, I found the most powerful prayer I ever prayed was when I was dangling upside down from a telephone pole 40 feet above the ground. He said, I just said three words. Help me, God. And Jonah felt like that repairman, didn't he? Sometimes we have fancy words and theological arguments. But the truth is, God hears the cry of the humble, repentant person who just does what Jonah 2, verses 1 and 2 says. Jonah says, I called to God. And he heard, he listened, he responded. Those two verses tell us what he did. But verses 3 and following tell us why he did it. And I want us to examine that this morning as we see that on this road back to God, there is a humbling that takes place. Often as God hears us, sometimes before God hears us, maybe even after God hears us. But the road back is is filled with at least two things we know of. It's filled with the fact that God hears us, but he does. He humbles us, too. We're going to see that today in these verses about Jonah's humbling and drowning experience. Now, before we get into the verses three through about nine, let me bring you some general oversight about this chapter. OK, I know mean, you've got a pen handy and I want you to keep your Bibles open to Jonah, too, because there's something very strikingly practical in this chapter that you might miss. Jonah 2 is actually, if I could put it to you just in a, in a real simple way, Jonah 2 is a collection of previous psalms. It's really Jonah crying out to God in the best way he knew how, using things he had learned previously in his life. In other words, Jonah chapter 2, there's, 
there's a number of what I'll call psalmic references. If you were to track them, you'd find at least five direct quotations from the book of Psalms and probably about nine or ten other references to the book of Psalms. And here's what I think happened. Listen very carefully. We know that Jonah was a Hebrew. He grew up in the land of Zebulun, which is actually current-day Galilee. We know that his, uh, he was from the, the tribe of the Zebulun people. So, watch this. I think as Jonah grew up as a Hebrew, he was taught many of the prayers and the songs that are in the book of Psalms. After all, that is the Hebrew prayer book and song book. So he learned them all as a child, probably. He learned them all as they marched to Jerusalem all the time. The Psalms of Ascent, the different ones that he learned. I think he just had to learn them as part of his uh, duty, so to speak, as part of his raising as a child. Now, he probably didn't like that any more than perhaps our 8-year-olds or 4-year-olds or 12-year-olds love memorizing Scripture. But he did it. And I think it's interesting and intriguing that when he needed help, he reverted back to quoting and praying things he had learned, I think, as a child. I mean, this, this psalm in Jonah 2 is actually a collection of many psalms. It's probably Jonah going down once. Lord, and he just re- he remembers something he heard as a, as a kid, a psalm he memorized. He goes down twice, Lord, and he says something else. He seemed to be quoting the scriptures he learned. Can I say to you parents, keep uh, filling your children with scripture because... Often, it comes out at the weirdest times. Amen? I mean, Jonah here is drowning. He doesn't know what to do or what to pray. And guess what came to his mind? Oh, verses I learned as a kid, probably. And he just started quoting them. I think that's one reason there's so many different psalms just quoted randomly. He was just bringing things to mind, saying them as he thought of them. And I want to tell you something. I am so thankful for our Kids Central program. This is not a plug that I was asked to make. This is not some selling point. This is my heartfelt transparent uh, emotion. I'm so thankful that we customize our workbooks and every Wednesday when they go home, they've got at least four to five verses to learn that are in the Bible. I'll tell you something. Those verses will take root and sometime in the future they're going to sprout and bear fruit. Amen. I want to encourage you. Keep filling your children with Scripture. I think Jonah 2 is a good example of why it pays off. So let's dig into Jonah chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. Here's what he says. He says, here's why he prayed what he prayed in 2, 1 and 2. He says, you hurled me into the deep. Now, interesting thing about that phrase is you would think that he says the sailors hurled him. But no, it was all part of God's humbling work, wasn't it? He now attributes his overboard launching to to God. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Who owns the waves and the crashing water? God does. This kind of goes back to chapter 1, by the way. When he was talking to the Phoenician sailors about the different gods, and they said, who's your God? He said, I serve Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. He here says, God, I know you own the waves. I know this is really your humbling work in my life. He says in verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight. He felt it was the end. He felt like the next stop was death. But in that moment, he says, I'll look again towards your holy temple. That's where God lived in that period of time at the temple. It's where his presence was. And he said, instead of looking to Tarshish, instead of looking at my own way, I'm going to look to where God is. It's a good idea, isn't it? Look towards the Lord. He says, the engulfing waters threaten me in verse five. 
And you, you know, you get a picture here of a drowning man, don't you? Waves crashing over him, waters engulfing him. I mean, this is a very vivid picture of his near death moments. He says, the deep surrounded me. You ever seen those uh, movies or pictures on National Geographic or perhaps some of those shows where they send the cameras deep in the ocean? And even though you're watching on TV, you can see the darkness and you can almost feel the, the, the heaviness and the weight of being that far underwater. He says, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. And he was near the very bottom. By the way, I love the word down here and its symbolic importance. If you recall, he went down to Joppa. And then he went down to the lower level of the ship, didn't he? And now he's gone down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. You know, you could say, and I've heard pastors say this, but you could say that when you run from God, that's the only way you can go, is down. And here he is at the very lowest. This is the last of the down he can go. He can't get any lower than the the roots of the mountains. He said, I sank down and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. Do you see the emphasis there on who's responsible for his salvation? He doesn't claim any sense of... uh, But he did anything. He says, God, it was the end for me. But you, you did it all. You brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. Verse seven. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Notice that phrase comes from first Kings. It's the phrase right out of Solomon's dedication prayer at the temple. And Jonah here is repeating that. I tend to think he made journeys there and. He remembers that prayer being prayed. So he's reverting back to things he had seen and heard. He's saying, you know what? I need to look again to where God is. He says, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols. By the way, the idol there he's referring to is probably the ship that he was on. Had he stayed uh, in that ship, had he clung to that vessel, that ship of Tarshish, he'd have gone down with it, wouldn't he? And this verse would have proven true. If you cling to worthless idols, you forfeit the grace that could be yours. And by the way, the whale was exactly the grace he's talking about there. That was a mammal of grace from God, wasn't it? Because he had no hope. He was drowning. He was on his way down. But God sent a great fish, as pictured here. And it rescued Jonah. Without his approval or request or anything, God just said, Jonah, I'm going to... Ordain and assign a great fish to rescue you from the seaweed and the mountains of the earth. I'm going to give you a, a work of grace. Aren't you glad Jonah didn't cling to that old ship? Instead, he let go. And though he thought it was the end, God saved him. And now what does he do? Verse 9. I, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I mean, that's what humility does for us, doesn't it? It brings us to places where we're no longer proud or we have to hold on. But we begin to to offer sacrifices. We give. We don't cling. We give. I will what I have vowed. I will make good for salvation comes from the Lord. What an intriguing set of verses here in, in Jonah chapter two. And they show me something really plain and simple. That if you take all of them as a whole and you look at this chapter 
It's a very humiliating experience for Jonah. He's describing when, after being thrown overboard, he almost drowned, but God rescued him. He's describing his lowest moment. And yet, what was ahead for Jonah? A moment of when God would honor him by using him in Nineveh. That shows me something about this prayer in this chapter, that humility is God's doorway to honor. You know, we love to avoid the Jonah chapter 2s, don't we? We don't want to drown. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to be in situations where we're brought to, to the end. But can I say to you that in God's economy, listen very carefully, first family, the way up is first down. Remember last week, the beginning or the end is usually the beginning. You can say it this way. The way up is usually down. In other words, humility always comes first. It's God's doorway. It's his entrance to honor. Now, when I say that to you, you probably hear that. And because it's in a spiritual package, because it has the word God kind of attached to it, you tend to fight that. I do. You tend to buck up at it and say, well, I don't want God to humble me. I don't want to feel like I'm being brought to places of humility. But we actually know this to be true in most areas of life. And we're really okay with it in life. We just think that God shouldn't operate that way. Let me explain what I mean. To the guys here, when you wanted to marry the person that you're married to now, your wife, you didn't walk up to her and say, hey, listen, baby, I'm the best thing going. And uh, you know what? You don't marry me, it'll be a massive mistake. You don't do that, do you? I hope you're laughing because you didn't do that, I hope. I saw Shalina tap Bob just now. I'm not sure what that meant. You know what you do, guys? You do this. You go through the doorway of humility to earn the honor, so to speak, of marriage. You get on the knee and you say, oh, beautiful princess of my life. And then you pull out this massive investment you've made. You say, if you'd find it in your heart. To just give me your hand in marriage and you go through this great spill. In other words, you gladly take a posture of humility, don't you? Because you want the honor of marriage. See, it's really not that out of a, out of a concept. But when God speaks to us about it, we sometimes, for some reason, act like it's odd. No, it's the same principle. God's looking for a heart of humility. You know, when you had your first job interview, whether it was either in high school, it's when I got my first job at... 14 or 15 at a fast food shop. I remember going back day after day. My mom said, you go and you tell that manager you want to work. I'm like, I turned an application in. She said, they don't read those. You go and bug him until he hires you. So I'd go back every day for like, I think, seven or eight days. I said, I'm back to see if you read my application and if you got a job. I think he hired me out of frustration of my mom, probably. I don't know. But whether it was in high school or whether after you got your college degree, your diploma, you know, you didn't walk into your potential boss's office and say, listen, I'm ready to kind of take over here. I've got the answers. I'll rescue the company. Uh, where's, my, where's my corner office? You didn't do that. You probably took the worst hours. You were glad to just have a job. I mean, you, you had a real posture of humility because you knew the honor was later. You see, guys, I'm asking you to realize that God works in much of the same way. And it is not wrong for God to say, listen, the, the, the road back, the path to honor always goes through the door of humility. And can I remind you, First Family, that humility is a non-negotiable. It's not an option. You don't get to choose the pathway of humility or not. All you get to choose is how you want it. Because the Bible says you can either humble yourself 
and He'll lift you up, or He will humble you. Are you with me? So really, humility is not an option. It's not whether you need it. It's how do you want to get it. And I'd prefer to take the posture of humility where I say, Lord, I want to humble myself and let you honor and lift me up, as opposed to perhaps having humble humility given to me in pie format, you know. You see, guys, let's understand that humility is God's doorway to honor. Let me get to you in a few different uh, sentences to maybe uh, be more specific about Jonah. God had to break Jonah's pride before he could open his lips. You know, Jonah was saying no to God. I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to speak of your mercy and grace to lost people, these Gentiles. So what God did, God didn't force his mouth open. He broke his pride first. And often, God has to work in us. Listen very carefully. God has to work in us before he works through us. See, that's really what humility does. Humility then allows God to change us. Before we go spouting off about how God wants to change somebody else. For God's looking for vessels who have been changed. Who have experienced His work. And then as we speak, we are speaking as authentic messengers. Humble messengers. Who not say, who don't say, you, you, you should. But instead, here's what God's done in me. Join me. Are you with me? That's what humility does. It allows God to work in us so then He can work through us. Solomon knew this principle well. And that's why he wrote in Proverbs 15.33, he said, Humility comes before honor. Will you read this verse with me? It's on the screens behind me. Read this verse with great passion with me. Ready? The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. It's just a principle that's true in life and it holds true in God's economy as well. The way down, excuse me, the way up is down. The way back to honor is through the doorway of humility. Now, perhaps you're saying, well, Todd, how do I know if, if that kind of thing is happening in my life? How do I know if I'm really learning humility and if, if uh, humility is wrapping itself around me effectively? What are the traits of a humble person? How can you tell if, if, if you're really developing a, a, a humility? After all, you don't want to be the kind of person that says, hey, I'm humble and I'm really proud of it, you know. That's not what you're after, amen. But we do want to pursue humility prior to perhaps God humbling us. There's nothing wrong with obeying the Bible and humbling ourselves. How do you know when that's happening? What are the traits of a really humble person? Well, believe it or not, I think Jonah chapter 2 in these verses, they give us insight into what a humble person looks like. So I want to just briefly lay out for you uh, two or three traits of a humble person. I want you to watch these and take some good notes. You're probably going to find maybe where you are on the humble spectrum. And to see how much more we should pursue this. And like in your case, in my case, let's just let God work in us in the next few minutes. As we see from Jonah 2, a little more insight into humility. I think, first of all, humility does this. It changes our perspective. Look at verse 4 and verse 7 of this chapter. Jonah twice mentions in this chapter that he will look again to the holy temple. He does it again in verse 7. And in fact, in verse 7, he uses the phrase, I remembered you. There's something about humble people that they're, what's this now? Their first response 
when humility really takes root, when it wraps its beautiful embrace around us, humble people aren't horizontal. They don't point and blame. They're vertical. They say, God, what's going on in this situation? What are you teaching me? They start with themselves. You see, proud people say, hey, that was your fault. I didn't like what you did. And, and, that didn't affect, and they, they point and they blame. Everything's horizontal. But humble people start with a vertical view. Not blaming God, but asking God for insight. Humbling Him to say, Lord, you're, you're obviously doing something. You're in control. What, what's going on here bigger than what I can see? It's what I call the test of first reactions. And every one of you this week ought to probably take this test. You can take it when you're driving. You can take it when you get a schedule conflict and something happens that was not on your planner or your Palm Pilot or your iPhone. This test comes to us when our spouse asks us to get milk and we're in the fourth quarter of our favorite game. Or when we're coming home and our spouse forgot to pick up the bread and you have to respond to that. I mean, the test of first reactions is do we blame and point and criticize and find some way to make it horizontal so that, that we feel better? Or do we say, hey, God, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. See, that's an actual verse in the New Testament. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God. And I've discovered that humble people have the uncanny, supernatural, spirit-empowered ability to respond to situations and experiences and, and shifting circumstances, not from a horizontal perspective first, but from a vertical one. Hey, God, what's going on here? They're open to God's perspective. That's the first thing humility does for us. Evaluate and analyze your own responses for a few moments. Is it always someone else's fault? Is it always some other reason you are where you are? If it hadn't been for so-and-so, I wouldn't be in this mess. Or have you just turned your eyes upward and said, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm coming to you first. Humility does that to us. It causes a change in our perspective. second thing humility does is it loosens our grip. Look at verse 8. I like the way Jonah says that uh, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You know, pride causes a man or a woman to hang on to his or her functional Savior with a little s. One of our elders mentioned this to me a few weeks back in some study time at one of our Lighthouse Leaders group. We get with our leaders and we just kind of talk about upcoming texts. And he mentioned that Mark Driscoll refers to this thing called idols as functional saviors. In other words, things that we in our life look to to give us significance or to, to solve our problems. They're little s's. And they only function temporarily, and usually they're, and they are false. But for some reason, we continue to believe that they work. The truth is, though, when hanging on to, to functional but false and temporary saviors, the little s, we forfeit the grace that comes from the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, to echo what Jonah said in this chapter in verse 8, how did grace come to us? John says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John chapter 1. And you can hold on to a, a shopping spree every week when you get upset to relieve you of your stress. You can hold on to going to the, to the food pantry, pull out whatever sweets you like to satisfy your cravings. 
You can hold on to being louder than everybody else in your family, so make sure you get control and you get your way and might is right. You can hold on to your video images. You can hold on to your computer pornography. You can hold on to a number of things that satisfy you temporarily. Yes, you can have a number of functional saviors, but in doing so, you forfeit the only true saving grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And I've discovered that pride causes us to hang on to functional little s saviors. And in the end, our own pride damns us, doesn't it? But when we let go of that and we cling instead to the only real Savior, Jesus Christ, and the grace offered at the cross, suddenly we find, oh, maybe not a quick fix, but we find a lasting, significant solution. Not only to our eternal destiny, but to our search for significance. That takes humility. To let go of things that you want to hold on to, things that you feel comfortable in, so that God can step in and do what He does best, save us. Can I read you an email from someone at First Family who let go of some idols that she was holding on to? They were idols of comfort and ease. She writes here, I wanted to share my Jonah experience with you, Todd. It's so amazing how God works in our lives when we take the time to listen and face our fears. For the last several months, I've had notions of putting together a Bible study at work. She mentions where she works, and there's about 1,100 people in her building. I mainly thought it would, be a, it would be nice if someone else did this. We've all sensed that, haven't we? Each time I thought about it, I just put it in the back of my mind. I really didn't act on it. This last week, though, I prayed that God would help me grow in my walk with Him and, and show me how to serve Him better. And this week, I believe God began to nudge me, and He told me He wanted me to be the one to put this group together. I immediately said, No thanks, God. And the excuses begin to fly. I'm not a leader. I'm not good at teaching. I'm not real comfortable praying out loud. What if I get in trouble with my boss? I don't know the Bible that well. I immediately thought of Jonah and his running away from God. And then a light bulb went off. I was doing the same thing. Then I realized that sometimes in order to grow up, we have to step outside of our comfort zone. We have to let go of things that we think are comfortable. I do feel that one of my gifts from God is encouraging people and having compassion. So so why not make the focus of this group to do just that? Somehow, that word from the Spirit put this task in a different light. And now it's not so scary. So we're going to meet over lunch just to share Scripture, talk about how it applies to our lives at home and at work, take prayer requests, and then to pray for each other and our leaders at our workplace especially during this difficult economic time when they're having to make some difficult decisions. I know I'm going on and on, but I'm really excited about this, and yet I'm still scared. I've already got four or five people who think it's an awesome idea. Thanks for this series, and thanks uh, be to God for leading me to FFC. I'm glad I'm letting go. Isn't that good? Someone who let go of the idol of comfort and ease and saying, well, that's not me. And when God just spoke and said, hey, here's what I want you to do, they said, okay, I'll do it. And man, the joy and significance found in just obeying God. It's not there as long as we cling to idols. I've discovered that humble people have a different perspective and have a very loose grip. You know, here's something, guys. You, You can't be humble when you're looking down on people 
and have a clenched fist. It's impossible. But humility is an upward gaze to God and an open hand. That's humility. Here's something else humility does for us. Lastly, look at verse 9. Jonah talks about how he's going to keep his vows. To be most textually correct, he says in the middle of verse 9, what I have vowed, I will make good. There's a real sense of determination in this phrase, isn't there? I think humility deepens our resolve. It really helps us kind of dig our feet in a little bit and, and make it. I don't mean necessarily from a, from a human angle, but it gives us that spiritual inner man strength that enables us to stand tall and not quit. Now, some may wonder, what is the vow that Jonah is uh, going to keep? Is he saying, I'm going to go to Nineveh? I don't think so, because if you recall, Jonah never vowed to go to Nineveh. Nowhere in the record of this book did Jonah ever say to God, I'll go to Nineveh. Now, God did ask him to go there. And since he was a prophet, since he was chosen by God, a spokesman for Jehovah, it was his job to go there. I think that's the vow he's talking about. I think he's going back to some earlier time in his life when God, so to speak, plucked him from among a a crowd of people and said, Jonah, you're going to be a prophet in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. I'm going to need you to speak for me. And Jonah said, okay, God, that's what I'll do. And when he ran to go to Tarshish, he was saying, oh, by the way, God, I'm quitting on what I told you earlier. Here in the bottom of the Mediterranean, in, the, in this mammal of grace, this sanctuary called a great fish, Jonah says, hey, God, I want to take back my resignation. I want to make good on my vow to be your spokesperson. And I think humility often does exactly that for us. It deepens our resolve. You know why? Listen very carefully. I'm going to explain this to you. It's hard to put into words, but I'm going to try to make this... Um, what I've been sensing the last few days, uh, try to make this where you understand it. It's not your lack of ability, it's my lack of being able to say it. Humble people, um, I've discovered humble people have deep resolve because they realize that their significance is, is not from people on the external, or it's not an outside force. It's not something they get from a pat on the back. It's from deep within. It's from the smile of God, not the the handshake of a man. Are you with me? And humility allows us the ability to be on mission for God. And that is a mission that really is, has nothing to do with us. I mean, the church, the, the mission of the church is to be about something of which we really never get fame or glory or riches or, or well-known. It's not like a business or a career ladder where when you get to the end, you get a Hollywood star or you get the profits from the, the earnings. None of that's going to happen. When all said and done, if we do our job well, He gets the glory and we're not really known. Are you with me? And it takes a truly secure person who's been humbled by God and who sees that, you know what, God, it's really all about you and I'm okay with that. That kind of person has the deepest resolve. You know why? Because when man stops approving, they don't change their position. If you're leaning on men all the time, if you've got to have a pat on the back, if you've got to have a slap on the, uh, you know, the back or whatever, if you've got to have someone always saying, good job, good job, when that stops, you may stop. But humility enables us to say, you know what, God? You give the greatest affirmation. It reminds me of what David said when he was running. And he had very few friends. He said, the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. 
And the greatest motivator for a truly humble person is not what any other person will say, but what God says and thinks. I think you can measure your journey towards humility by how much motivation you draw from God or from others. Now, there's folks in this church. You've never heard of them, probably. They've been here since day one. And they've done so many behind-the-scenes chores. And they never think twice about it. You wouldn't, they've never been up here. They've never had their face on a picture. They've never been flashed on a screen. And they serve so faithfully. If you talk to them, you'd think they're almost apologetic if they don't do more. You know what they are? They're just truly humble people. They have found their greatest significance. They have found their deepest resolve in the fact that God has smiled upon their sacrifice of service. It's the least I could do would be what they would say. And I long to get to that place, don't you? To where my resolve is deepened and firm. Not, not because someone else said it should be or because I've got some approval here or applause here, but because God has humbled me and said, here's the way walk in it. And humility does that. It changes our perspective, it loosens our grip, and it deepens our resolve. That's why you should pursue humility before God pounds it on you, if I can say it that way. Go after it. It will change your perspective. It will loosen your grip. You'll realize you're not the owner of it. You're just the manager of it. God, however you want to use these things, these resources, help yourself. And you'll, it'll deepen your resolve. You'll know God's in control. He's the one who gives the real approval. I was talking with one of our ladies last week. She's lost her job. And um, I didn't ask for this information, but she volunteered it. And she said, I just want you to know, Todd, that I'm going to be faithful to my commitment to give to the Lord. Now, as a human, I probably would have said, listen. If anybody deserves a break from that promise, you do. She said, Todd, and I didn't say that to her, but in talking to me, she said, Todd, I made a promise to God. I'm going to keep that. She really understood her resolve was deep, but not because of some commitment on an earth level, but because of her promise to the Lord. Isn't it neat when you find people who, who don't change their positions when circumstances change? Who don't change their opinions because other people have changed, but who, who really have found a, a sense of resolve. Based on what God has said. On their vows to God. That's the kind of humility God produces in us. And that's what happens when we pursue humility. So this week. Very simple assignment for us all. Let your first glance be upward. Vertical, not horizontal. Ask God for a different perspective about anything that comes to your life. Say, Lord, I just want to give thanks here and... What are you teaching? What's going on? Keep a really loose grip. Okay? In these kind of times, it's probably not real hard, is it? I'm sure the Lord's finding all kind of ways to keep our grip loose, whether we like it or not sometimes. Keep a loose grip. Don't cling to idols. Trust in Jesus. And then let your resolve be deepened. Know that God smiles upon even the smallest act of service done in His name, whether anybody knows about it or not. And let that help you resolve and determine to serve the Lord and make good on your vows to Him. Imagine if five, six hundred people 
pursued that kind of humility all week. A different perspective, a looser grip, and a deeper resolve. I bet communities all across Central Iowa would, would, would see a difference, wouldn't they? From a church of humble people who know that the doorway to honor is humility. As we pursue the road back, as we look to honor the Lord, as we look for Him to honor us and use us, let us be willing to walk through the doorway of humility. Let's pray, first family, as we leave this morning. All of our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.